listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. week uh, I took my family down to Jacksonville and we went to the Dude Perfect show. Anybody, any kids familiar with Dude Perfect? Y'all know what Dude, some of you adults? Yeah, we saw some adults there uh, by themselves without kids. Uh, but we went down to Jacksonville to the Dude Perfect show. I was like, hey, hold on to my hand a little bit closer there, boys. And so we went down, uh, we were there Friday night and we were there at the beach the day before, uh, just kind of made a little small trip out of it. But, but here's the thing, we didn't just say, oh, you know what? Dude, perfect is happening in a couple of days or a couple of hours. Let's jump in the car and ride down. I bought these tickets months and months ago. And we didn't just say, hey, let's, on the way down to Jacksonville, let's try to see if we can find a hotel to rent. No, I made that reservation weeks and weeks ago. And we didn't just say, hey, you know what would be awesome? If we had brought our bathing suits to the beach. Oh, let's go to Walmart and get some. No, we planned for the trip. We had to prepare months and weeks and days ahead of time so that when we arrived, it was like, okay, we're here. So we pulled in. We actually got to our hotel a bit early so we couldn't check in. So we parked on the street. We said, okay, everybody out. Let's change our bathing suits uh, in the car. But then we jumped out, and then we went to the beach. We were right there for a few hours and then went and checked into our hotel. Check-in was really easy. I said, they said, okay, what's your last name? I said, Powell. They said, oh, here we are, room 214. Okay, boom. Because we had made preparations for that. So we all understand that in our regular daily lives, we understand how to prepare. We prepare for trips. We prepare for company. If you have someone coming to your house, what do you do? Hey, um, this is just the way the house is. I mean, you get to see it for all it's worth, you know, uh, warts and all. Yeah, there's dust. Yeah, there's stuff. No, you prepare for that company. You, you put your, your ba- best face on right? You put your best foot forward and you start cleaning. And so sometimes we're like, man, I wish we had a little more company so the house would stay a little bit cleaner. Anybody right there with me? You're like, kids, go pick up all your stuff. Let's get cleaned up. We make preparations. And so we're reading today and we've just read about John the Baptist. And so his primary emphasis, his goal was to say, Jesus is on his way. Prepare the way for Jesus, because Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the only Savior. John wasn't about himself. He's pointing the entire time to Jesus. And so here's what I want us to hear this morning. I I want us to hear that, that Christ is coming, and I want us to be repenting of sin, to be pursuing Christ, because like so many other areas of our lives, we can prepare really well. We can prepare for lunch today. We can prepare for this next week that's coming up. We can prepare for a trip. We can prepare for our kids' future. We can prepare for a job. But are we preparing for things of eternal consequence? Are we even considering that most days? Are we considering that most parts of the day? Or is it just, here's what's next? Because we prepare for what is most important to us. And so we're going to see here in John chapter 3 what John is preparing for. So Caleb just read this. I'm not going to read the entire passage again, but we see in John chapter 3 and verse number 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, here's what we know about this. First of all, this story of John the Baptist is told in a few different ways, but this is a really important story. It's told in all four Gospels. And so we know that that there aren't a ton of stories that are told in all four Gospels. This is one of them, so this is really important. But we also know that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, this is probably about 29 A.D., 
And like we saw in Luke chapter 1 and verse number 4, he, he, he says, he told Theophilus, he said, I want to write an orderly account. And so as we read this, we're like, man, what's up with all of these details? What's up with this whole genealogy? Well, the reason is so that we can believe and so that we can respond in faith. So he says here, this is probably the 29th year uh, because uh, this is the, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. Look down at verse number 2 with me. So we have the setting there. During the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. And we already know that he's the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. We saw that in chapter 1. We talked about Zechariah. But, but here's why that little phrase right there is important. The word of God came to John. The word of God came normally through a prophet. And we actually see that phrase used 222 times in the Old Testament. God's word would come through the man of God or the woman of God who was a prophet and they would proclaim that word from God so that the people of God would hear the word of God and repent of their sin. And so we have here John saying, here's the word of God coming yet again. And we have John, this, this weird looking dude who, who's got crazy hair and he looks like he, he's probably been homeschooled in the woods for the past 15 years. And you're like, oh, this is strange. He's never run into people. He eats locusts. He hasn't shaved. He's got a big butch. And this is actually a real picture, kids. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so we have this, this really weird guy who didn't know, nobody knew anything about him. He wasn't special. He, he didn't have this great story. But all of a sudden he starts preaching. The word of God comes to John. And next thing you know, he's number one on Spotify. He's number one on iTunes. People have his, his, his face on their t-shirts. He reaches some level of popularity because the word of God was coming through John. Now the word of God was, we see it right here as he begins preaching. He calls for repentance. Here's the beautiful thing about the word of God. You're like, oh man, I hate to hear about repentance. This sounds like, you know, big you know, tent, church revival, repent, turn or burn, that kind of thing. But here's why the, the word of God coming to John is important. is because God had not spoken to his people in almost 500 years. You feel that silence right there? That was about four seconds. Imagine over 400 years of silence from God. But then the word of God comes. This is what we call grace. God doesn't have to speak to us. He doesn't have to speak through John. But he does because he is a gracious God. The grace of God, grace means unmerited favor. For the kids in the room, grace is getting to eat dessert when you didn't eat your dinner. Right here, the word of God coming to John is grace. This is dessert without eating dinner. That's also not a recommendation, okay? So, uh, so we have the word of God coming to John. Here's what he says, verse number three. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of what? A baptism of repentance. That word repentance right there, the word in the Greek is actually metanoia. Everybody say metanoia. Pretty good. So metanoia means a change of heart that results in a change of direction. You've got to have both. Repentance is both of those things. So he says he wants to proclaim this baptism of repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness, and we, we often throw this word around, hey, you just need to forgive yourself or forgive someone else. Here's what forgiveness literally means. This is why I, I don't think it's actually possible to forgive yourself. Um, but forgiveness means you take the guilt and you place it on one side and you take the guilty party and you place it on the other. That's the image that John is drawing here. He's saying the guilt that you had is now separated from you. 
This is the forgiveness of sins that only comes through Jesus Christ. So this is his sermon. Now, if we get down to verse number four, we see that this is kind of his, the only sermon he preaches. And he stole it, okay? So he stole it from Isaiah chapter 40. But here's the sermon that he preaches. So, so notice this. He says, the voice of one crying, and he, he takes this literally directly. If you go back and look at Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, this is verbatim right from that. And he says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, we've seen this phrase, prepare the way. We actually saw it uh, back in chapter 1. What does Zechariah say? He says, I'm going to have this son named John, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, and his one responsibility is going to be to prepare the way of the Lord. And so we see here, this is John fulfilling the promise that happens just a couple of chapters later. It, when it says prepare the way, literally what that means is when a king would come into town, they would make all of the roads level. They would clean it up. There's a bunch of trash in the road, a bunch of animal feces. They would go and clean those things up. So he's saying, Let, let's pour some new gravel on the road. Let's, let's level this out. We have somebody important coming through. So John is saying, I'm here to prepare the way because somebody important is coming through. We lived in Africa for a while when I was a kid, and um, it's back when Bill Clinton was the president. Some of y'all are like, wait, I've heard about that name in the song, all right? I know I was alive. I'm really old. Uh, so Bill Clinton was the president. Well, he actually came to Uganda for a visit to meet with President Museveni. And I'll never remember. My mom is, um, she's probably going to listen to this, and so uh, that's okay. But she has some interesting ideas sometimes, uh, some of them better than others, all of them fantastic. But uh, one of the ideas that she had, she said, oh, Bill Clinton is coming into town. There aren't a ton of Americans. And this is before the internet and all these different things, also before 9-11. And so she said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make some brownies for Bill Clinton. True story. And I said, okay, awesome. How are you going to get them to him? Well, I'll just try to push my way through the crowd, and then we'll try to hand them to maybe somebody in Secret Service. I'm not the brightest bulb in the box. But I thought, what are the odds that the president of the United States of America sees probably some of the only white people in the whole town, but he's like, you know what? Yeah, I will eat those brownies. I doubt you've poisoned them. I doubt you're actually undercover because everybody in their right mind wants to move into the middle of Africa. So of course you're normal people, you know? So my mom made brownies. And no joke, uh, we saw Air Force One land right there in Kampala, Uganda, and she tries to push her way. And she finally handed the brownies to somebody who was probably just a security guard there uh, for the nation of, of Uganda. But she said, can you get these to the president for me? And I'm sure he was like, yeah. Sure thing, lady. But in light of that, I don't know if he ever got them. I have no idea where that story ends. He didn't write us a letter. We didn't end up on CNN. No idea where, they, where the brownies ended up. I doubt they made it to uh, President Clinton, but maybe they did. But even in light of that, I think back and I'm like, my mom thought this person was really important, and maybe he wanted some brownies, <laughs> like a little taste of home. But that's what these folks are doing. They're saying, somebody important is coming to town. Prepare the way. I wish that story connected a little bit better, but it doesn't. So here's, here's how we... <laughs> When we consider repentance, though, so we have here the sermon that John is preaching. There are a couple of things that we see here in the passage that he's not saying. And I call these counterfeits to repentance. And the counterfeits to repentance are the fruit of religious idolatry. Okay? The counterfeits to repentance, because there's, there's true repentance that he's calling for, and then there's, there's this counterfeit that I think we think, oh, yeah, I'm going to repent of that. 
again. Here are some of the things that, that we see here. There's worldly sorrow. So there are those in, in our culture who would say, yeah, I apologize. I'm sorry I did this. And they go on Oprah and they sit on the couch and they have a tour, an apology tour, and they put all these things on social media and they make a big donation somewhere. This is worldly sorrow, but it's not true repentance. It's a counterfeit. Because if you notice, look right there, and we just read this, but if you look uh, at verse number five, notice this is construction language. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. What John is talking about here, he says this is a construction project that happens on the heart. This is not some external worldly sorrow. Look at the next counterfeit. There's moral pontification. I couldn't think of a better word. Pontification just works out really well. But what that means is it's somebody sitting on their religious high horse looking down at everyone else, pontificating over them. And this is how they speak with uh, beautiful religious jargon. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Is there anything wrong with, with moral pontification? Yes. Because moral pontification says this, there's not so much wrong with me, but yes, there is definitely sin in the world. Yes, and we would like to repent of all the sin in the world. It's not mine, it's someone else's, but let's repent of this sin. And I've got some, uh, some prayer requests for you, brothers and sisters. Let me tell you about this sin that's happening in someone else's life. Anybody familiar with that? That's actually called gossip, okay? We just label it as prayer requests sometimes, but it's like, oh, man, did you hear about that sin? And more pontification is saying, I'm not really in this sin, but somebody else is, but let's repent of that. But look at verse number, look at verse number six. Here's what, here's what John says. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So instead of sitting on the high horse, we see here that the eyes of the blinded will be open. We can't have our eyes closed to our own sin and still have our eyes opened by Jesus Christ. There are only two options here. Don't fall into this trap of counterfeit repentance. The third one is mere confession. This is just over and over confessing sin, saying you're sorry over and over. Look at verse number seven. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. He says, you, you pit of snakes. You think you can just come and confess day in, day out. Who's he talking to? He's talking to mainly religious people. Oh, yeah, I'm so sorry I did this. Over and over and over and over and over again. This is a counterfeit of true repentance. We see the next one is pagan prosperity. And we don't see it necessarily in this passage, but we know that what religious folks do is they want to repent of sin. They want to turn from that so that we can experience the blessing of God. This is what we call a prosperity gospel. We want to turn from our sin, supposedly, so that God will bless us financially. Then the last one that we see is making excuses. And we see that right here in, in verse number eight. But here are the excuses we make. Let's blame it on my parents. Let's blame it on my history. Let's blame it on my Enneagram number. Let's blame it on the people that I work with. We'll blame it on my wife. We'll blame it on my circumstances. We'll blame it on everything else. But notice what John says here to the crowds. He says, verse eight, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, oh, look at my family history. I don't actually need to repent of this sin. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Here's what he's telling the most religious people. He's saying, yeah, you look back at Abraham, at Father Abraham, but Abraham was grafted into the family of God. Because before God chose Abraham, he was a pagan. He was running far from God. It wasn't, hey, let's, let's look back at our family history and just think of how awesome this is. He's saying, no, you must be part of true repentance. So here's true repentance. So that's counterfeits to repentance. But then on the flip side of that, uh, a life 
of true repentance actually points to Jesus. So this is where we have to figure out which one of these camps am I living in? Am I actually, is it, is it counterfeit to repentance or is this true repentance? So here's, here are the marks of a life of repentance. The first one is conviction of sin. And I would, these are actually even the steps of repentance. So the first step in repentance is conviction. And this conviction happens in your heart. It's where the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of his word, from being in community, from a friend, from something you read, this is where our heart is convicted by sin. And you don't just say, oh, well, I know that's bad. The consequences are bad. But no, we say the holiness of God is at risk. We're acknowledging this problem. And if we consider here, consider the, the, the preacher, John the Baptist. Most of the times, we are more concerned with the politeness of the preacher than the condemnation of our souls. John MacArthur said this when preaching about this passage. He said, hard truths make soft people. And we have so many in our culture today, friends, where we're like, ah, I want something a little more palatable. I want that truth to be a little bit softer. But can I tell you that soft truth does not bring about conviction. And it makes for hard people. So the first step is conviction. I mean, I've got to change this. The second step that we see there is confession. True confession of sin. And we know from 1 John, this is how we receive the blessing of salvation. We must confess our sin. But we don't just confess it to Jesus. We confess that in community. And you're like, yeah, why do you keep trying to push us into community? This is just about me and Jesus. That's where we're able to hold each other accountable. We're confessing the sin to one another because we are growing as a body. So the second step is confessing sin. The third step there in living a life of repentance is actually to repent. This is a desire to please God above all else. And, and repentance literally means, like we just talked about, a change of heart that results in a change of direction. And so we can't change direction from our sinful nature, from our sinful state, from our acts of sin, and then turn and face God and our sin. It's one or the other. And so this repentance happens when we turn our back on sin and we turn and face the creator, the savior, the one who has saved us from this sin. We can't look at both of these things. It can't be like 10 and 2 or 9 and 3 or whatever they teach now. I played basketball growing up, and so it was keep the ball in the defender and keep them both here. We, we don't play defense that way against sin. We have to turn our back on sin so that we can face God and bring all glory to him. The last one there is resolution. We must be resolved, which is interesting because Martin Luther, at the very top of the 95 theses that he tacked onto the door there in Wittenberg, he said, all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. And then he said, let us be resolved for the sake of change. And we look at the Protestant Reformation, and we think it's a Protestant rebellion. It wasn't a Protestant rebellion. They weren't like, hey, we're anti-church. He says, let's reform the church. Let's repent of sin, and let's have a church that is changed, that is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be resolved. It results in action. We're not to live like hermits. We, we don't remove ourselves from the culture, but we live different lives in the same culture. That's repentance, and we're constantly repenting of sin day in, day out. Notice here, look right down there at the bottom of that. As he's preaching this, notice who is bearing the good fruits. If you look at verse number 12, he says, Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And then he looks down at verse number 14, he says, Soldiers also asked him, now, tax collectors and soldiers, are they the best friends in the world of most people? No. Folks didn't like them. But what we see here, they're not known for their piety, but
But John says, he's got them in the audience. He's like, here's how I want you to live differently. The kingdom of God is going to come through unlikely sources. May it be us. May we not be counterfeit. Then we get to verse number 15. As the people were in expectation, all were concerning, questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Here's the message of John. He's pointing to Jesus as the only hope. John can't say, hey, look at me, look at how good I am as a Christian, let me point to me and look how good I am uh, in repenting of my sin, look how good I am as a preacher, look how good I am as somebody who reads my Bible every day, and also look at Jesus. He's saying, no, just look at Jesus. We're all running toward him together, we're pursuing him together, we're pointing to Jesus. We We see here he didn't want to untie the strap of Jesus' sandal. He says, I'm not worthy of that. Sandals were were nasty. Um, unlike some interesting people today who wear socks with sandals, uh, people in this day did not wear socks with sandals. It was just sandals, and they were just nasty, and they were just there. And as you're walking on these dirty, dusty, feces-infested roads, you would get somewhere, you want to take your shoes off. And John's saying, I'm, I'm not even worthy to do that. A job that's reserved for slaves, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus' feet. And then look at verse number 17. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, there's a a dichotomy. There's two options here that he sets up. And he also said this back in verse number nine. He talks about he's laying an ax to the root of the tree. But, so there's two options. And what they would do is they would take, a, they would take the wheat they gathered in and they would take this, this winnowing fork, this, uh, this pitchfork looking thing, and they would take the wheat and they would toss it up in the air. And as the chaff, the, the part that surrounds the hole, the good part of the wheat, the chaff would blow away. It was not good for anything. Chaff was not good for anything at all. But then the wheat, the good stuff would fall back to the ground. And as it would blow away, sometimes it would collect in another pile. And he says, he says here, you're either wheat or you're chaff. You're either useful or you're not. You're either in Christ or you're not. You've either been baptized simply with water or you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit and you are in him. You have been forgiven or you have not been forgiven. Your soul is at rest for all time or it's going to be in constant turmoil until you die. He says those are the options. He's sitting here making comparison. He's saying, here's the contrast. Which one are you? How are you living your life? If you were to look at my yard, because I do almost every day, and it looks mostly green. It looks, it looks pretty decent, but once it gets kind of long like it is now and a little bit higher than it should be, you're like, ooh, yeah, that's green, but that's just weeds. <laughs> you're like, I'm like, yeah, that's why I keep it short because it looks like grass. It looks beautiful and lush, but it's not a, it's not a golf course. It's not beautiful Bermuda grass that's just so long and you want to go run through it. Only when we keep it low. So sometimes in our lives, we look really good. You look real good. And you're like, yeah, my my life is made up of repentance. But it's primarily the counterfeit kind. But as long as nobody knows that I'm okay. You see, it's difficult to tell the wheat from the chaff until Jesus Christ comes and he separates those two out. And so I would plead with you this morning, don't just look good, because you can look good but be completely useless. 
You can look good as nobody really, if nobody really questions things about you. But in reality, you're just a weed. Only you know that. You can put on a, a great face. John says here, you must be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse number 18. Here's the good news for us. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Now, this good news is for anyone and everyone, because we just saw at the very end of Isaiah chapter 40, what he quoted, he says, this is salvation for all people. And so you're like, okay, well, I just, just got to make sure. If you have confessed your sin and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is a son of God and that God raised him from the dead to the glory of God the Father, then you will be saved. And so John says, this is not a, just a message of destruction, of doom and gloom, but he says, this is good news for us because if you are still alive, then you still have the opportunity to repent of your sin. And you're like, man, why, why is John so fired up here? Why does he eventually get beheaded? Why are you up here sweating in a jacket? It's because your sin is what separates you from God. And just like John, I want us to be a people who are repenting, turning from that and turning to the face of God. Your soul is at stake. It's not too late. Notice what happens to him as a result in verse 19. Herod hears about this. Herod the Tetrarch, which means he's responsible for, for one-fourth of the kingdom, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife. He basically took his, his brother's wife, and he was like, hey, you know what? You can be my wife, too. Let's do that. So some jacked-up, you know, Alabama stuff. Uh, for his brother's wife and all the evil things that Herod had done, adding this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So we see here, this, this message of news, of good news and hope, it's not received by all. Those often who are in power do not like this, this news of, uh, of hope. So we see here that John is tortured. He's eventually killed for this message. Then we get down to verse number 21. And we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus wasn't baptized for himself, because he wasn't, if Jesus wasn't baptized for himself, why was Jesus baptized at all? Jesus was baptized, and you can read a bunch of different theologians, and there's a bunch of different answers, and here's what we know is that Jesus was baptized primarily to identify with us. Jesus was baptized to identify with us. Look at verse number 20, 21. Now, when all the people who were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened. Now, notice here the Trinity. The Trinity shows up. We've got God uh, in Jesus, the Son form, already here. And the Holy Spirit, second person of the Trinity, descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. Here's the third member, the Father, who says, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Maybe you've heard the, the doctrine of modalism, where God takes different forms at different times. This right here is one of at least three passages in the New Testament where the Trinity shows up in physical, tangible form. And when, when God takes on a physical form and reveals himself right here through a dove, we call this a theophany. Everybody say theophany. Okay, we can literally see the presence of God in a different form. And so we have here the Trinity. We, we see the Trinity a couple of other times. We see him at uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, and then we see the Trinity on the way to the cross. So this is, a, this is one of those very few times, uh, a transformative moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. Where else, maybe some of the kids know this, where's one of the first places that we see a dove? And we actually see this in the uh, genealogy of of Jesus that we read in just a few minutes, but the story there, the guy who released a dove, what's that guy's name? 
Noah. Yeah, we see Noah who releases a dove. So this dove is a marker of a new world. It's a marker of hope. So the Holy Spirit here descends on Jesus like a dove. We see here the Father who speaks. And a king would impart power, would impart authority, would impart wisdom, would impart riches and inheritance on his son. We see here the Father saying, yeah, this is my son. We share this identity. In him I am well pleased. And some folks, I see these videos on Facebook, and, and people are like, yeah, but Jesus, Jesus wasn't fully God. It never says that he was. No, here, the Father, God the Father says, that is my son. And we know that Jesus claimed that authority and that deity. That's why he was eventually put to death. So we have the Trinity showing up here. We get down verse number 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And then he goes through this whole genealogy. Now, does, does Jesus' baptism happen before or after his ministry began? It happens before, right? We see him baptized. In the very next verse, we see that Jesus' ministry began. Here's why that's important to us. Christ's identity was not based on his work. Christ's identity was not based on what he did. It's based on who he was. He was the only true son of God. And as a result of that, his ministry looked the way that it did. Here's why that's good news for us this morning. Whether you're a plumber or a teacher or a salesman or a stay-at-home mom or uh, a forever uh, college student, wh whatever you are, your identity is not wrapped up in that. Your identity is in Christ and Christ alone because of the life that Jesus lived. And in the same way that the Father here approves of the Son, the Father approves of you. Not because of the work that you do, but because of the work that Jesus did. Because of Jesus' finished work on your behalf. That's good news of hope for us this morning. If you look here at these verses, we have, I think it's 76 names. 38 of these names we never hear anybody else. And you're like, how are you going to break this down? I'm not really. Here's what I think about when I think about this. I think about a bunch of, it's a bunch of Star Wars or Star Trek names. I've never seen those things, but I've seen Lord of the Rings. And so this is what I think of is like all these bunch of random people with these crazy names. And I'm like, okay, that's the image that comes to my mind. All these people are important. But here's what I want us to see. At the very end of this phone book of people, we don't need Jerry Springer to show up and say, you know what? God the Father Jesus is your son. No, we have here the genealogy of Luke. And he walks it all the way back for us to this guy named Adam. And notice what Luke calls Adam. He calls Adam the son of God. Now, who are the two folks in history that have no biological father? Adam and Jesus. So he says here, Jesus, in the same way that he's the son of God, Adam is the son of God also. And we know if you look at Exodus chapter 4, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, God calls Israel his son. So we have the people of God who have been commissioned by God to live a perfect, holy, and righteous life. Adam messed that up. Israel messed that up. Jesus comes and identifies with us in Adam, with us as an Israelite. He says, finally, God has a perfect son, and it's Jesus Christ. 
Finally, after all of these years of waiting, after all of these years of longing, this is the way that we have been created and designed, but sin has crept in and messed us up. Repent of that, for the Lamb of God is here, the perfect Son of God, who the Father has been looking for for thousands of years. Jesus Christ has arrived on the scene. He became sin for us. He took our place. And then he gives us his perfect life, his righteousness. He grants that to us. So his baptism here, the genealogy here, you're like, man, this is, this is messed up. Like, what, why all of these things? It reminds us that Jesus was the fulfillment of a promise and that Jesus is the only true, perfect son of God. So we see here our identity in Adam, but we also see a new identity given to us in Christ. And I want to answer this question for us this morning with five answers. But the question is this. What does this passage reveal about our identity? What does this passage reveal about our identity? Here's the first answer to that. Is that our deepest problem is sin. Our deepest problem is sin. That is our nature and that is what we do. We are nurtured in that. We sin because we are sinners. And so we must come to grip with this being our deepest problem. Of all the things that are happening in this world, our greatest problem is sin. But here's the good news. How does this passage point to our identity? Secondly, is that recognizing God's grace always produces repentance. John doesn't say, do some more better things. Do them faster and do them bigger and make sure everybody knows about them. Let me tell you all these bad things that you're doing. Repent of those things. Boom, boom, boom. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's an abuse of grace when we say, you know what? I'm going to sin even more so that we can get more grace. That sounds real familiar, right? Kind of like Romans chapter 6. We don't keep on sinning so that we can keep experiencing more grace. We've experienced the grace of God. We've received a new identity. This identity that we have received is not the end point of salvation. It's the beginning point of salvation. And when we receive that new identity, what flows from that is community, is mission, is obedience. We look at the grace of God and we respond to that in repentance. But not only do we recognize God's grace, but relying on the Spirit's power always brings new life and growth. We can do a lot of stuff to fix up the outside. We can do a lot of things to make ourselves look really good. But it is only through the Spirit's power that we can experience regeneration, that we can experience sanctification, being made holy. It's only through the Spirit's power that he gives us gifts to use for his body and for the sake of the lost around us. It's only through the Spirit's power that we can be equipped for ministry, all of us, no matter our vocation. It's only through the Spirit's empowerment that we can be sent and used for the glory of God. So rely on the Spirit's power. The fourth thing that we see this morning when we look at our identity is I would encourage y'all, friends, I would encourage us as a church to be ready for Christ's imminent return. To be ready. And we've seen right here so far in the first three chapters of Luke, there's always, always a remnant of God's people who are anticipating the coming Messiah. We've seen these folks with Joseph and Mary, with Elizabeth and Zechariah, with Simeon and Anna. And we see here John the Baptist saying, prepare the way. There's always a remnant of God's people. 
May we be a remnant of God's people in the midst of a culture that cares only for themselves, that we'd be a haven for other believers, that we'd be a light for the lost, saying repent and turn, and that we as a church would be a welcoming party when Christ comes again. I would ask you, since today is family worship, are you preparing the way of the hearts of your children? Are you preparing the way for Christ? Or are you offering them the satisfaction that the world offers? Are you putting in front of them a life of obedience, a life of sacrifice, a life of repentance, a life of true joy and eternal satisfaction? Or, or are you putting in front of them better grades and a successful career and a great retirement and another trip next week and a bigger house and a nicer TV and a pool and something nice to drive and, and private school? And are you putting all these things in front of them as the ultimate thing? Is there anything wrong with those? Absolutely not. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, that means it's a bad thing. Are you about building his kingdom or building yours? Because sometimes as we look at this genealogy, what we're called to is to be faithful. We're called to faithfulness. And oftentimes, that is the greatest gift that you can provide your kids. So are we being faithful and saying, this is what it looks like to pursue Jesus above all else. Here's the last truth about our identity that we see this morning. And this is probably the best one. This is, this is really good news. We are not perfect like Jesus. But God chooses to look at us that way. Now, we as a culture, we, we figure out the best way to contort our identity and to frame our identity and to be the best version of ourselves and to find happiness for ourselves. And when someone else looks at us and they're like, ah, I don't know if I really, I don't know if that looks good on you. I don't know if you should be doing, oh, you know what? I'm going to change. I'm, I'm going to change what I do. I'm going to change the way that I look because we're seeking the approval of so many folks around us. When the creator of the universe has said, I approve of you. I love you. You don't have to create your own identity. I've given you a brand new identity. You don't have to find satisfaction for yourself, in yourself, in the things that this world has to offer. We can find our satisfaction and identity in Christ. And we see here this genealogy. We have this, this comparison between Adam and Jesus. We have Adam where we're often trying to find our own identity just like him. Did God really say that? Don't you want to know the difference between good and evil? Don't you want to be just like God? We have Jesus who says, I am God, and I want to redeem you. I want to offer you true hope if you will repent. Turn from being that old man. I'm the new Adam. I'm the second Adam. I'm a better Adam. I'm the son of God. You see, in Adam, God looks at us, and we are sinful. We are full of sin, but in Christ, we can be sinless. Because of Adam... We only inherit guilt, but in Christ we receive forgiveness. In Adam there is condemnation, but in Christ there is salvation. In Adam, our future is only death, but in Christ we have eternal, lasting life. Of all the things that Adam messed up, Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of all those things. In Adam we are born, but in Christ we are born again. And so I would plead with you this morning to repent, to fix your eyes only on Christ, 
who is the author and the finisher of our faith. We see here that John the Baptist said he was unworthy to untie even the sandals of Jesus. But as Christ was going to the cross, what did Jesus do for his followers? He washed their feet. He didn't just untie their sandals, a position reserved for slaves, for the lowest in society, but he went in and washed their feet. With the greatest of humility, he says, I want to serve even the least. The only way for us to respond in true repentance is with humility. This passage is not just about them. In this passage, we're not Jesus. In this passage, we're not John the Baptist. In this passage, we are the least. And so I would plead with you as we celebrate this meal called communion, because right after Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, what did he do? He said, I'm going to die for you. My body is going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be shed for you so that when the Father sees you, he doesn't see you, he sees me, my finished work. He says, so humble yourself. Repent, repent today. Repent of the bad things, repent of the good things. Many of us are like, yeah, but you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand the grace of God. It goes further than your sin. And some of you are like, I don't think you understand how good I am. I don't think you understand how little I really need the, the, the grace that we have in Christ. And I would say, your sins are much worse than you know. Fall upon his mercy. That is the only place to find hope this morning. So as we partake of this meal, this is a reminder for us of humility. This is a reminder of Christ's sacrifice for us. This is a reminder of the way that we are supposed to live, humbly submitting all of things, all of, all of life, to Christ. And so there is something that is taking the place of Jesus Christ in your life. As we partake of this this morning, repent of that yet again. <laughs>